The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. Good morning and welcome to church here this morning as we are continuing our message series, uh, looking at the different miracles of Jesus and really seeing how those miracles can apply to our lives and our circumstances and the situations that we find ourselves in. This morning, we're going to be in John chapter number 11. We're going to be looking at a very well-known miracle. We're going to be looking at the miracle of Lazarus, how Jesus raised him from the dead. And the title of our message this morning is simply Miracles in the Midst of Grief. Miracles in the Midst of Grief. John chapter number 11. We're going to read verses 17 through 44. I'm not going to read the entire uh, portion of that right now. So we're just going to jump right into it. Uh, Well, today is April 15th, right? And if you're a history buff, you know April 15th is kind of a rough day in history. On April 15th in 1865, uh, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. It was on this day in 1912, April 15th, 1912, that the Titanic hit the iceberg and sunk. Uh, If you are a baseball fan, today is a bit of a historical day for the state of California in baseball. It was actually the first professional baseball game ever played in California on this day in 1958. Do we have any Giants fans in the building this morning? All right, yeah, we got some. Do we have any Dodgers fans this morning? All right, good deal. Well, this is a bad day for the Dodgers. On this day... In 1958, the San Francisco Giants, in the first ever professional baseball game in California, the Giants beat the L.A. Dodgers a whopping 8-0. So, Giants, you all have that notch in your gum belt there. April 15th is also the day our taxes are typically due. So if you haven't done that yet, let me encourage you, pull out your phone, download TurboTax. No, don't do that right now. Um, But after the service, you'll, you'll want to get on that. April 15th. Well, for me, kind of April 15th on, on a personal level, it's, it's kind of one of those days that I would just, I, just to be honest with you, I'd rather skip it, like just go from the 14th to the 16th. And the reason being, April 15th was my dad's birthday. Uh, today, he would have been 59 years old. Uh, this coming Saturday, in just uh, the end of this week, will be the seven-year anniversary of the day that my dad took his life. In 2011, my dad had been the subject of a police investigation that had been taking place over the course of several months, and he was involved in some very immoral crimes. And after the investigation, the detectives had enough evidence to issue a warrant for his arrest. Uh, They came to serve that warrant at the church where my dad had been the pastor for the better part of a decade. In Arizona, where all this was taking place, he pastored a church in Phoenix. Um, It's perfectly legal to openly carry a firearm, and my dad did. And at the time, the detectives and the police came to issue the warrant. My dad was walking from the auditorium to the church office outside. And when he saw the police officers and he saw the detectives, he put the pieces together. He knew what was going on. He ran into the office and barricaded himself in the office. Then uh, the office locked all the doors, barricaded himself in there. Well, the police and the detectives, they have no idea what's going on. They just see a man with a gun go and barricade himself. Uh, they didn't know that my dad actually went in there and that's where he took his life. They just see him run in there, barricade himself, and then they hear shots fired. So the police actually called for backup, not knowing what happened, and a more intense uh, police unit showed up. They literally put explosive strips on the front of the office door, uh, blew the door off its hinges, big aluminum door, completely folded it in half, knocked out all the windows. They rammed down uh, the other door where they came into the office to find uh, my father's lifeless body. In 2011, when all this took place, it was actually the Thursday before Easter Sunday. Easter was later in the month of April that year, and this happened the Thursday before Easter. I'll never forget, I was cleaning up uh, after our children's class that Thursday night at our old property on Clinton Avenue. 
I was cleaning up and I pulled out my phone after the class and I saw I had missed several calls from my brother. And if you know my brother and I, we're close, but we have a very low maintenance relationship, which means we never talk to each other. And so for my brother to repeatedly try to get a hold of me and then a text that says, call me as soon as you can, I knew something was up. And when I called him back, he told me, he was just like, I'm just going to tell you what the police told me and mom. And then he proceeded to tell me what happened. In that moment, grief felt like ran over our family like a freight train. We were struck in that moment by tragedy, and I know there are many families in our church who are also experiencing grief. You're hurting on levels you never knew you could. Questions you never thought you'd have to wrestle with are now what keep you awake at night. You can't even close your eyes to get away from them. You've experienced the shock. Uh, we're going to see down in our text um, that these Jews, all these people that were there with Mary and Martha after Lazarus had died, they were sitting in their grief, the Bible says. That was customary for the Jews. It was symbolic of the fact that their grief was so strong, all they could do was just sit there in shock. And so they were literally sitting there in shock, and you've been there. You've experienced that shock. You've had those moments where you've lost all desire to eat. You've lost all desire to do anything. Just getting up in the morning feels like a battle. The fact that you're even here today, you feel like it was spiritual warfare, and it was. And you ask yourself, where do I go from here? What now? This grief, it's just mowing me over, and it feels like it's winning, and it's winning. What do I do? Where do I go? In our text, we see a family, Lazarus' family, that's also hit by that grief. And not just his family, but literally an entire community is stricken with grief over the death of Lazarus. We don't know a lot of details about the sickness that Lazarus had. We don't know what type of sickness it has. It seems to have come on him suddenly, and people realized pretty quickly that the sickness was going to take his life. Uh, but we don't know what type of sickness it was. We do know that Jesus had a very close relationship with Lazarus and his family. Uh, John eleven five, 5, our text says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, that was Mary, and Lazarus. So obviously Jesus had a very close relationship with these people. He was close. They were some of his closest friends. Uh, many people believe that Mary and Martha and Lazarus uh, were a family in this community that had a lot of esteem. They had a lot of clout. They probably were, had a lot of wealth. Uh, a lot of people think they actually helped fund some of Jesus' ministries. Um, and we can tell that because when they're grieving, they're literally the entire community comes out to grieve with them. It's not just Mary and Martha. It's literally this entire community, and they're sitting there with them for days and days and days so we can gather that Lazarus' death really shook this entire community. But what Jesus is going to demonstrate for us in our text this morning, and what I believe is actually a theme that we see throughout Scripture, and I would actually even argue that's embedded into the gospel itself, this theme that grief is actually the pathway to joy. Grief is the pathway to joy. Now, if you're like me and you've been through grief, you don't want to, on a good day, you don't want to believe that grief can be a pathway to joy. On a bad day, you would probably even argue that it, that it isn't. How in the world can grief could be a pathway to joy? But I want you to consider the cross for a moment. The ultimate example of this would be the suffering of Jesus on the cross, which led to his resurrection, which is our greatest source of joy. So even though that grief is the pathway to joy, that might be hard for us to hear in a moment when we're suffering, and in the moment of our grief, it is actually our greatest hope, and I believe embedded into the gospel itself. And so what I'd like to do this morning is simply unpack this idea of grief, and hopefully help us biblically understand it, 
and how we can navigate grief well for the glory of God. Our first thought uh, this morning that we see about grief in our text is that grief is confusing. Grief is confusing. There's three verses I want to point out to us this morning. Uh, First of all, look at John 11 and verse number 21. The Bible says, Then Martha, then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. Lord, if you had only been here, Lazarus would still be alive right now. Look at verse number 32. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. And then if you flip over and you look at verse number 37. And some of them said, Could not this man, which opened the eyes of the blind, have caused that even this man should not have died? So literally, we see all these people that are experiencing this grief from the death of Lazarus. Every single one of them look to Jesus and go, couldn't he have done something? They were all confused by the fact that Jesus didn't seem to do anything. They were confused by the fact that Jesus came late and they were trying to understand if he could heal the blind, couldn't he be at least healed Lazarus? All these people impacted by his death are somewhat confused that Jesus did not heal Lazarus. And like the people in this story, when we experience grief as humans, oftentimes our knee-jerk reaction is to understand why, isn't it? We ask, God, where were you? God, why, why, did, this have to, why did this have to happen? We, we try to make some sort of sense out of it. We try to figure it out. We try to understand what caused the grief. We often look to someone to blame. We look for a situation, or at the very minimum, we get confused that, God, why didn't you intervene? God, why didn't you do something? I can remember after my own dad took his life, I, I remember wrestling through this and trying to make sense out of it and trying to put all the pieces together. And, and for me, I, I wanted to make sense of it so I could put it in this neat little box so that I could put it on a shelf and then move on with my life. And for me, for the longest time, I just chalked it up to, well, it's just a result of his sin. It was just a result of his sin. That's what happened. I, ju- I could just move on with my life. And to some degree, that was true. It was the result of his sin. However, that's not really how it works. Our tragedy doesn't get put in this neat little box. It's not, it wasn't how it worked. The problem with trying to do that was it didn't answer any of the hard-hitting questions that my soul was asking. It didn't make things better. It wasn't like I could just put it on the shelf and forget about it. My soul was asking these questions like, why my family? God, why? why? Why did this have to happen to my dad? God, you're in control of all the universe. You're sovereign, right? Why did this have to happen to my dad? This is one of those stories that you hear about on the news and you think, that'll never be me. Now it is, and I'm sitting there thinking, God, why? I can remember thinking, he was a pastor. How could this have happened? I remember at one time, I was, I was wrestling through this, and I thought, God, My family has just been trying to serve you faithfully at this small little church in Phoenix, Arizona, a church that never seemed to grow, but we're just trying to be faithful. And it seems like nothing's happening, God, but we're just trying to serve you with our lives. Why would this happen to us? God, we didn't deserve this. Why us? The reason we try so badly to make sense out of our grief and tragedy is we think, if I could just understand this, if I could just get my head around it, if I could just understand it, If I could just make some sort of sense out of it, then maybe I can get some kind of control in this situation. And if I could get some measure of control back in this situation, then maybe I can keep it from happening to me again. Or maybe I can keep that tragedy from happening at all. If I could just understand, if I could just get some level of control over the situation. 
That's why when grief and tragedy hit, our human instinct is to try and understand why. We look for a cause. We look for a person to blame. Like the people in our text, we cry out, Jesus, if you had only been there, God, where were you? We sent word ahead. We told you. We were trying to get you here so you could keep this from happening. Jesus, where were you? We see this confusion hitting these people as they're suffering and in their grief. What I find interesting, though, is that Jesus never rebukes any of these people. When these people are asking why, when these people who don't yet believe in Jesus, and they're being critical about Jesus, at the end, these people that are there, they're weeping, they're there to support Mary and Martha, they're like, if he could heal, if he could heal a blind person, why couldn't he heal this guy? I mean, Jesus, we've seen you raise the dead before. Why, did, why, did, why, why didn't you just even heal him? These people, they're being critical, but what we see is Jesus never rebukes them. In fact, throughout Scripture, you see the same type of confusion whenever somebody enters grief. Take Job, for example. I mean, we love it when Job says, though you slay me, yet will I trust him. We sing that, we preach that, and we should, because that is the right response. But I find we often don't like the other verses where Job asks God some hard-hitting questions, like in Job 23, where he says, today my complaint is bitter. He says, God's hand is heavy despite my groaning. If only I knew how to find him so that I could go to his throne. I would plead my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn how he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Job's like, God, if I only knew who you were, I would go and I would present my case to you, God. Why, this is not fair. Job's like, God, I'm, I'm struggling with some bitterness right now. God, my heart is bitter. My complaint is bitter. There's some serious confusion going on right now. He goes on. He says, would he prosecute me forcefully? No. He says, he would certainly pay attention to me. Then an upright man could reason with him, and I could escape from my judge forever. Job's like, if I could just argue my case, God would have to see what he's doing isn't fair. Over and over and over again, we see Job asking God why. And throughout his story, he makes sense like, God, yes, I trust you. Yes, I know you're sovereign. Yes, I know you're in control of all things. I just really wish I knew what you were doing. I wish I could have a lawyer who could argue for me before you, God. Job 13, 3, yet I prefer to speak to the Almighty and argue my case before God. This isn't, this isn't just unique to this situation, though. David, King David, experienced this same thing. In Psalm 22, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and my word from my groaning? God, why are you so far away? My God, I cry to you by the day, but you're not even answering me. God, I'm crying at nighttime, but I have no rest. God, I can't even sleep. And in none of these stories where we see these people asking God these hard questions, so confused about their suffering and wanting to know why, never do you see God rebuke them. But over and over and over again, you see God coming through for them. What we do see in all these stories is that embracing the confusion in our grief is actually how we lament. The word lament, it just means to grieve. It means to be honest about how you feel, to pour out your heart to God, to tell God these hard questions. Embracing the confusion in your grief is actually part of how you heal. Asking why in our grief is not wrong as long as we are asking God. You see, what we sometimes underestimate about all these different prayers, we look at those prayers that Job prayed and David prayed, and all these questions that Mary and Martha and all these people are asking, we kind of scratch our heads and go, are they even allowed to pray that? But here's the deal, they're still talking to God. They're still praying to God, and as long as they're taking their prayer to God, the asking why is not wrong. I think the reason we struggle to identify our emotions and then praying them back to God is because we'd rather avoid them. 
I, I, I don't want to wrestle with that. That's messy. That's ugly. I, I, I would tend to think like, oh, no, I should be better than this. I should, be able, I should have gotten past this by now. I shouldn't still be struggling with this. We would rather bury these questions and bury these emotions and bury the confusion deep down, just hoping they'll go away and hoping the questions will just stop bothering us and hoping it'll all work out. But I can tell you from personal experience and I can tell you from the pages of Scripture, that just isn't how it works. Oftentimes we don't want to acknowledge our negative emotions because our pride tells us we shouldn't be feeling them. Can I just say that's a lie? Nowhere does Jesus say you should not be feeling this emotion. Nowhere does Jesus go, Martha, get it together. No, he welcomes that because in your grief, you're taking it to God. We don't want to acknowledge that hard, those hard emotions. We don't want to acknowledge them because we think we should be better. We would just rather pretend like they aren't there, and we definitely don't want to talk to God about them. Like he didn't already know or something. Getting real with what we're feeling is scary because it's humbling to some degree. It's humbling to say, I'm hurting. It's humbling to say, I'm broken. It's humbling to say, I don't understand what God is doing. We'd rather keep up the facade that we're uber spiritual and we have all the answers. It's, it's humbling to say, I don't have a clue. I don't have a good answer. But James 4, 6 gives us this promise. It says, God resists the problem, but gives grace to the humble. So God's grace will meet you in that humility. As you embrace the confusion and as you humble yourself before God and say, God, I don't understand, God's grace meets you there. God's grace will meet you in that confusion. It meets you in your grief. God's grace meets you there. So here's our first takeaway from our first point this morning. Three simple points. Each point has a simple takeaway. First takeaway, embrace the confusion and take it to God. Embrace the confusion and take it to God. Embracing the confusion and lamenting. Pouring out your heart to God. Crying out to God, God, this does not seem just. I feel like I'm being the victim of injustice, God. I feel like this isn't fair. Crying out to God. Lamenting is actually evidence of great intimacy with God. Asking God heavy questions that reveal our heart's cry is not an immature thing. It's a very mature thing. It says, God, I need you. God, I am nothing without you. God, right now, I don't feel you. I don't know what you're doing. I don't understand. I don't feel you. But God, I'm going to trust you despite that. I'm going to believe you despite what I'm feeling. So when we embrace that confusion and we take it to the Lord, it's actually part of the process of how we heal. Jesus never rebukes Martha or Mary or these other people for grieving. God never rebuked Job for his emotions. God didn't rebuke David for his emotions. But what we see happen over and over and over again is that while God doesn't always explain himself, he does something even better. He gives us himself. We think about Job when he's crying out to God. God shows up and says, Job, this is who I am. Boom. In our passage, Jesus comes and he gives them himself. You see, one of the main ways, one pastor put it, one of the main ways that we move from an abstract knowledge of God to a personal encounter with him as a living reality is through the furnace of affliction. Embracing our grief and the confusion that comes is not a sign of defeat. It's actually the first step towards victory because in our grief, we experience Jesus like never before. Confusion in our grief can actually be a driver to the presence of God. And the Bible tells us that in the presence of God is the what? Is the fullness of joy. So grief is actually a pathway to authentic joy. Yes, grief is confusing, but we can embrace the grief and take it to God, which leads us to our next thought this morning. Because we can take it to God, because we can take it to his presence, grief is not 
hopeless. Let's read verses 21 through verse 27 of our text. Grief is not hopeless. Verse 21, then said Martha unto, uh, unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother would have died. I'm just going to pause right here. Martha gets a bad rap from the other passages where she's being busy and running to do very things. She actually does the right thing here by running to God. Mary's the one that's sitting in the house, and Martha has to say, hey, Mary, get up. Go talk to Jesus. Martha's actually doing the right thing here by running to God. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died, but I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it to thee. I love Jesus' response. He says, Jesus saith unto her, thy brother shall rise again. Jesus is giving her hope. Jesus is giving her the hope of eternity, the hope of what he is about to do, this awesome miracle. And Martha, she, she responds like so many of us do. She said unto him, I know he shall rise again at the resurrection of the last day. Lord, I, I know. He, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Lord, I know he's in heaven. Lord, I know that. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 Martha. You're missing the point. He goes on, verse 25, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Jesus saying, if you believe in me, death is not the end. Do you believe this, church family? I can remember over and over again, I would have to come to this and be like, Nick, do you believe this? Do you believe that death is not the end? Do you believe you still have hope in the middle of your grief? You see, what Jesus is doing uh, with Martha in verse 25 is he's giving her the gospel. He's giving her himself. He's saying, Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. This is so much bigger than how you're making it. You see, Martha falls in the same type of thinking that we often do. She was failing to connect how the eternal could have an impact on the here and now. But Jesus was about to give everyone there the biggest object lesson in the world for how the eternal affects the here and now. You see, the resurrection, the gospel, it's not just this end-of-life doctrine. It's an everyday living doctrine. And because Jesus comes and he says, look, because I'm alive and you believe in me, death is not final. There is still hope. You see, we as believers, we understand many doctrinal truths in our mind. But those truths seldom make their journey down into our hearts except through disappointment, except through failure, except through loss and grief. The point Jesus is driving home here is that because of the resurrection, he is always with us. Because of the gospel, death is not final. I, I, I'm here with you, folks. He's like, I'm here with you, Mary. I'm here with you, Martha. Death is not final. This is, this is not the end. Our grief is never without hope because we have God. Because of the gospel, because of the resurrection, we always have hope. Jesus gives them himself. And in our grief and in our sorrow, Jesus gives us himself. Jesus enters into our suffering. So yes, grief. Absolutely grief. Lament. Cry out to him. Don't just try to bottle it up. If you try to bottle it up, you will never experience the healing Christ has for you. Lament grieve, but in doing so, never forget that Jesus is with you. Trust him through your grieving. Even when it feels like your world is falling apart, even when you don't understand what's going on, Jesus is with you, and because of that, you are never without hope. So here's our second takeaway this morning. Trust that Jesus is with you in your grief. Trust that Jesus is with you. Even when you can't feel him, even when you can't see what he's doing, even when you can't understand what's going on, trust 
that Jesus is with you. But how does Jesus enter our grief? You say, okay, Pastor Nick, Jesus comes, he, he enters my grief, he suffers with me. Great, now there's two of us that are bummed out. <laughs> what, does that, what does that mean? Well, look at verse number 33. I love this. Verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, so he's talking about Mary now. So Mary, or Martha talks to Jesus. Uh, Jesus at some point said, hey, go get Mary. Martha runs, she gets married. She says, hey, Mary, Jesus wants to talk to you. Jesus gets up to go talk to Mary, and this whole crowd of Jews follows him. She's like got this whole entourage going with her to Jesus, and they're all weeping. And when Jesus therefore saw Mary weeping and saw the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. What does that mean? The Greek word here for groaned carries the idea of being moved with indignation or anger or to sternly charge. Say, why in the world was Jesus feeling that type of an emotion? Why is he quite literally groaning in anger? You see this scenario, as Jesus looks at these people's grief, as he looks at their sorrow, as he sees Mary weeping, as he sees Martha weeping, as he sees all these weeping in their grief at the loss of uh, Lazarus, this scenario brought to the forefront of Jesus' mind the evil of death. And as John Calvin put it, it's violent tyranny and the general misery of the whole human race. And Jesus burns with rage against the oppressor of men. So literally, as Jesus is seeing this scenario, he's seeing how death is wreaking havoc. He's seeing the evil. He's seeing his violent tyranny, how it's raging against his whole human race. He sees them, and he literally burns with rage at the oppressor of men. Death is the object of Jesus' wrath. And behind death, him who has the power over death, and whom he came into this world to destroy. Jesus is getting angry. He's feeling this wrath. He's feeling this intense emotion because he's witnessing what the enemy is trying to do. And Jesus is like, I've had enough. So literally, Jesus marches to the tomb, as John Calvin again said, as a champion who prepares for conflict. So when we say Jesus enters our grief, quite literally what we're saying is Jesus goes before you as your champion, fighting for you. This verse here uncovers the very heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation. Not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against his foe. He is so passionate against evil. He is so passionate against grief. He is so passionate against death that verse 35, he literally bursts into tears. Verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. We often get this all wrong when we picture this, you know, perfectly hair-combed Jesus with the perfectly trimmed beard, coolly letting this one little tear trickle down his feet. That's not it at all. This Greek phrase is often translated, burst into tears. So literally, Jesus is so passionate against evil for you and for me. He is so passionate against suffering. He is so passionate against death that he literally bursts into tears. He breaks into our grief and shows us that I have the power over death. Jesus goes before us in our suffering, in our grief, as our champion who is going to win for us, who's going to conquer evil. He's going to conquer this tragedy for you. He has the power to make all things new. He has the power to restore all things to himself. People ask, why doesn't God do something about all our tragedy? He did. He sent Jesus to conquer it for us. And when we say Jesus enters our grief, when we say trust that Jesus is with you, it's not just saying he's sitting right there next to you passively. No, he is fighting for you. He is fighting for you. He is winning against evil on behalf of us. He is defeating death. Death is defeated. That's what we mean when we say Jesus is with us. He's there fighting for us. He is so passionate. He is so passionate about conquering evil on your behalf. 
That's why he groans. That's why there's this righteous indignation that's blowing up within him. That's why he's literally bursting into tears. He is so passionate. And it seems when we're in the middle of our grief that evil is winning, doesn't it? I, I get it. I, I've been there. There's days where you just you don't even want to wake up because you don't want to feel. You don't want to think. You don't want to acknowledge what's going on. And it feels like evil is winning. It feels like suffering is just going to go on forever and ever and ever. But my friend, we have hope. Because we have a champion who has gone to battle for us and literally fought against all the forces of hell and came out triumphant. He won. We can have hope. We can trust that Jesus is with us in our grief, fighting for us. And what we see here is Jesus marches towards the tomb and raises Lazarus from the dead. We see that ultimately grief has an end. It feels like it'll be forever. But what Jesus so forcibly demonstrates is that grief has an end. Its day is coming. Let's read verses 38 down through verse number 44. Verse number 38, Jesus therefore again, groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. There's that same phrase, he's groaning. There's that feeling, that passion that's coming to the surface of Jesus. He comes to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, take ye away the stone. (laughs) You know, this this is like an intense passage, right? It's kind of a somber sermon. I, I love how Martha responds here, right? Everybody's weeping. Everybody's crying. Jesus is like, I'm going to raise him from the dead. Don't worry. Jesus is like, okay, let's take away the stone. Let's get this thing going. And what does Martha say? Uh, Lord, by this time, he stinketh. He's been dead four days. Lord, are you sure you want to move that stone? <laughs> He's really going to stink. And again, we see Martha not getting past the temporal, not getting past the physical. And at Jesus, he just, I love what he says. He says, at verse 40, Jesus saith unto her, Said not I unto you that if you would believe, you'd see the glory of God. Martha, didn't I tell you if you would just believe, you're going to see my glory? Martha, stop looking at the temporal. Verse 41, Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. He says, I know that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe thou hast sent me. Jesus is basically praying, God, I'm praying this out loud so everybody knows you're answering my prayer. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with with grave clothes, and his face was bound about him with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Verse 45, Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. You see, by Lazarus raising, by raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus was giving everyone there a picture of his resurrection power. By raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus was showing them all that this is the real deal. I am the Messiah. He had the resurrection power. He was reminding them that through grief, true joy was to come. He was giving them a picture that reminded them that your salvation is going to come through grief, not, not in spite of grief, But through grief, your salvation will come. And for us on this side of the resurrection, we can quite literally sit in our grief and taste joy because Jesus has conquered death. That is why faith is so huge, especially in our grief. Yes, embrace the confusion, take it to God. Trust that Jesus is with you in your grief, fighting on your behalf. But then our third takeaway this morning, believe that God is working all things for our good and for his glory. 
Jesus prayed. He's like, Lord, I'm praying this out loud for these people, for their good, so they'll know. And for your glory. You see, the gospel is the reversal of death's irreversibility. That's why we can have joy. Death seems so permanent. Death seems like the end. But Jesus comes along and says, nope, it's just the beginning. Death seems so final, and grief makes us feel like it's all over, but Jesus powerfully reminds us that that's not the case. He reminds us that earthly grief is actually the pathway to heavenly joy. We must believe that God wants to use this grief for our good. In his book, um, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, author Tim Keller, it's a phenomenal book. Uh, It's not an easy read, but if you could get through it, I promise it'll help you. He said this in his book. He said, things put into the furnace properly can be shaped, refined, purified, and even beautified. He said, this is a remarkable view of suffering that if faced and endured with faith, it can in the end only make us better, stronger, and filled with greatness and joy. Suffering then, and this is, this is the miracle in the middle of our grief, right here. Suffering then actually can use evil against itself. I love what Joseph said at the end of Genesis. He tells his brother, you meant this for evil, God meant it for good. The gospel power, the resurrection power can literally take that evil and use it against itself for the glory of God. Suffering then can actually use evil against itself. Tim Keller went on to say it can thwart the destructive purposes of evil and bring light and life out of darkness and death. We always have hope because the grief we experience in this life is not the end. It's only for a moment. God wants to take this hard moment and he wants to use it. He wants to use it to produce joy. He wants to use it to produce life. He wants to use it so that you can experience him in ways you never even thought possible. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, therefore we do not give up. Paul's saying because of this, we don't have to quit. We can keep on going. Even though our outward person is being destroyed, yes, your grief is real and it feels like it's wrecking your body apart. I've been there where the grief is so strong. It's so strong. You don't even want to eat. It's quite literally making you sick. You don't know what to do. You feel like it's the end. Paul says, even though our outward person is being destroyed, he says our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. He said what it's doing inside of you is so big and it's so glorious and it's so absolutely incomparable to any grief you'll ever face. He goes on, so we do not focus on what is seen, but, what are, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. Paul's saying this grief, this trial that you're in the middle of, when you look around, it's all you can see, Paul says. It's temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. That's the joy that God is producing in you. That's your inner man being renewed day by day. Paul, Paul is telling us we can persevere. We can press on, even though the pain seems so real even though the grief is consuming you. The power of the gospel of Jesus is reversing that evil and using it for good. The miracle in the middle of our grief is that we can find joy. That we have joy. God has given it to us. Grief is actually the pathway to authentic joy. God wants to use it for our good, but he also wants to use it for his glory. Three more verses in John chapter 11 I want to point out. First one's in, uh, first one's verse number four going all the way back before Jesus comes on the scene when he finds out Lazarus is sick unto death, uh, he says, when Jesus heard that, he said, the sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of Man might be glorified thereby. When Jesus prays in verse number 40, 
or before he prays, excuse me, when he's still talking to Martha in verse number 40, he says, said, not, said I not unto thee that thou wouldest believe thou should see the glory of God. Verse number 45, then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. At the end of our story, God gets glory because there's all these people that now believe in Jesus. God used this tragedy. God used this death so that many people could find eternal joy in Christ. And God is glorified when these people are now like, yeah, he's the Messiah. He, he's the real deal. He is the Messiah. God is getting glorified. We may not know the purpose of our suffering right now. And I can remember so many times, how are you going to use this, God? That's, that's not even really the point. One of the things that I love about the story of Job is God never tells Job why. Nowhere after God restores everything to Job does God tell Job, oh, hey, Job, by the way, Satan and I had this big cosmic bet going on to see if you... No, Job never knows. God never reveals why. We may not know the purpose of our suffering right now. We may never see the purpose of our grief this side of heaven. But we can know for certain that our grief can produce joy if we by faith allows it, allow it, and that glorifies God. When we sit in our grief and we taste the joy of the Lord, that brings God glory. I don't know exactly how God wants to use my story or your story of grief. I, I, I feel like from my story, I can make some educated guesses. I feel like maybe he wants to use a life of faithfulness despite negative circumstances. Maybe he, he wants to use it to help other people in their grief. Perhaps God wants to use it to break the generational cycle of sin that's been in my family. I don't know. But here's the deal. Knowing isn't the point. God is free to do as much or as little. He's God. But we can have joy. The point isn't figuring it all out. The point is I can experience the joy of the Lord, and that brings him glory. God gets glory when we find our joy in him. Embrace the confusion. Don't try to bury it. Don't try to hide from it. Embrace it and take it to God. Trust that Jesus is with you in your grief. You have a champion who is fighting for you. Trust that Jesus is with you in your grief and believe that God is working all things for our good and for his glory. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.